we decided to proceed with amniocentesis because, again, we just wanted to have that full picture. We wanted to know. We didn't want to leave anything to be a surprise. And, and I remember being left with kind of this gap of what is it like? What is it like to raise a child with Down syndrome? What caused us to be hesitant to parent in the first place was just the fear of the future, the fear of the effect on our family, on our other children, um, whether or not we could manage. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Just rethinking this whole idea of independence. Is that the end goal of our life, to be completely independent of everyone? Is it really such a bad thing to rely a little bit on others for things that you need? I mean, we all do. I'm grateful things don't always go how you plan, and sometimes you get these surprises that um, bring a blessing that you never knew you were going to enjoy. Julie McConnell is 47 years old and the mother to six children, 25, 20, 18, 6, and two-year-old fraternal twins with Down syndrome. She lives in Idaho, where she is very involved in the local Down syndrome organization, as well as with a number of regional and national organizations that provide support and advocacy for those with Down syndrome and other disabilities. Thank you so much for doing this interview. You are welcome. I'm excited to excited to be here and be a part of it. I've been doing this podcast for about two years, and I feel like Down syndrome is one of the most classic, well-known genetic conditions that comes up all the time in genetic counseling. But we still like we haven't <laughs> done an interview with anyone um, who has a child with Down syndrome before, with the exception of one that we just recorded with Stephanie. So I'm excited to put both of these out. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's the most common, commonly occurring chromosomal abnormality, I suppose. So there's a lot of families out there that this is very real to. Yeah. So you have fraternal twin boys with Down syndrome, right? So I mean, that I know when I did a brief Google, I was like, wow, the media really likes you. <laughs> it was really cute. <laughs> um, so what, yeah, like you were just saying, um, it's one of the most common chromosomal conditions. What, what do you tell people that a diagnosis of Down syndrome means? Um, well, I guess, you know, in a nutshell, um, I think that the main thing is that most things will just take a little bit longer. We kind of like to refer to it as kind of a scenic route, um, with our boys, um, you know, developmentally, we expect that they'll achieve pretty much every milestone that any other child will, will achieve. It's just a matter of being a little more patient and they'll do it kind of on their own time. I mean, I know every kid does, but, um, with kids with Down syndrome, there's definitely a little slower pace. Um, and really, I think it gives you time to, you know, enjoy the, the scenery you know, and kind of take a look around and, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it helps you build your own patience. And um, so it's been, it's been good. It's a lot of it has been really enjoyable just having a little, a little bit longer. Yeah. I'm, I really like that. I've never heard that before. The scenic route, your twins turned four last August. How did you learn initially that they had Down syndrome? Um, I am in my forties and we have another little bit older guy. And when we were pregnant with him, we kind of knew what the markers were and, and all of that. So when I got pregnant the second time, we knew, you know, we knew what the possibilities were. Um, obviously, the first ultrasound when we discovered that we were having twins, that was a big shock. <laughs> I mean, I realize that's more likely with, a, with an older 
um, and, you know, advanced maternal age multiples are a little more common. Um, we're real excited about the twins, obviously a little terrified, but excited as and well. You were actually, and you were hoping for a girl. Is that right? <laughs> like very much hoping for a girl. Well, that was kind of what <laughs> we thought, right? Doesn't everybody kind of want one of each, right? right. Um, we have one little, now we want one little girl and then we'll just put a little bow on that little family there and all will be just as you imagine. And, um, I don't know, I'm grateful things don't always go how you plan. And sometimes you get these surprises that um, bring a blessing that you never knew you were going to enjoy and be happy that you have. So um, yeah, we were thinking one more and maybe a little girl. I was dreaming about tights and bows. And um, so when we went in for our second ultrasound and they started doing that nickel fold measurement, things like that, we knew, we, we knew what to look for. We knew what they were seeing and we had the suspicions immediately at our second ultrasound. Um, so from there, we proceeded with kind of that um, progressive, you know, screening where they slowly give you a little more um, accurate idea of what your chances are of having a Down syndrome diagnosis. Um, and we went ahead um, with the NIPT testing, um, with the blood test um, as well, just wanting to know what we were up against, uh, you know, what, what was going the whole story. We wanted to know everything. And um, that came back um, indicating that there was Down syndrome present. Uh, but when you're having twins, there's no way to know from just a blood test if it's one or both twin um, tw- of the twins that are affected. So we decided to proceed with amniocentesis because, again, we just wanted to have that full picture. We wanted to know. We didn't want to leave anything to be a surprise uh, when they were. We wanted to have all that information up front. So, so that's how we um, how we found out, I guess. Okay, with the amniocentesis. And were you referred to mm-hmm. genetic counseling through that process at some point, or was this all just back and forth with your OB? We were we were with my OB, um, and then in order to have the amniocentesis, we had to be referred to maternal fetal medicine, um, a more high risk clinic, um, and that's where you know we went in first for a very extensive ultrasound, um, very extensive. Where they were looking at everything, the possibility of heart issues and. Um, there were some possible bowel issues with one of the babies. There was some mysterious fluid buildup. A lot of things that were really, really scary, actually, in that initial um, extensive ultrasound at maternal fetal medicine. Um, we finished that, and then we sat down with the genetic counselor after that ultrasound. This was all in one big, long appointment, um, and my husband was with me, and um, she sat down with us. And um, at the time, it was a terrible day, and it was very traumatic, and we were fearful and um, you know, it looked like there was a possibility of a lot of medical complications. Plus we thought, oh gosh, there's a Down syndrome diagnosis with at least one and, um, very, very upset. And at the time, um, all of the medical professionals there came across to us as being almost kind of cold, um, or callous. Um, but in hindsight, looking back, really what they did was, um, they did the right thing in that they didn't ascribe any, um, positive or negative spin, I guess, to these possible diagnoses. They didn't um, come at us with this, with, with, oh, I'm sorry and pity and sadness, but they also didn't come in with this, oh man, it'll be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which I think is what's appropriate for medical professionals to, to deliver the information in a way that this is strictly information and I'm not here to tell you or um, sway you in how you should uh, react to this information and what this information means for you personally. So for us, they did it in a very good way in that regard. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, and we were provided with information. Um, you know, we, we, um, a lot of the information was pretty medical, uh, a lot of, um, you know, um, 
higher risk of this condition, that condition. Um, and a lot of it sounded very, very scary. Um, I think we received a little bit of information that was more um, a few um, personal stories written in a book from individual families and their life with their child with Down syndrome. It's hard to see that though when you're um, receiving a lot of this also terrifying sounding medical information. Um, but we were with that as well. And then we were really left to ask questions at that point. Um, if we needed, if we wanted to know more about termination as an option, we asked those questions and we were provided with answers. We asked about adoption and if that was an option and our genetic counselor didn't know very much about that option. So we ended up kind of finding that ourselves. Um, we just Googled and ended up finding the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network. But, um, but I, like I say, I think it was quite appropriate that we did not receive, um, any kind of a of a instruction on or encouragement to proceed in any one direction. I know a lot of moms that have had quite negative experiences where they felt very pressured by their medical professionals to uh, proceed with termination because so many women do. The percentage is quite high of how many women do proceed with termination. And um, I know women that have felt very, very pressured um, to proceed with that. And that was not our experience. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So on the whole, it was a terrible day but a positive experience looking back at, at how things are handled. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, every diagnosis is different and Down syndrome can be very, really variable, but based on your experience now, having those twins who both have Down syndrome and are four years old, like looking back, do you feel like the genetic counselor gave you a balanced picture of Down syndrome or do you think that there's another way that she could have described it or other options she could have talked about um, in terms of possible outcomes that might've been helpful at that time? I think, I, I think, again, I think her delivery was, was balanced in that it was not biased. Um, I feel like the, the information was a bit limited. Um, I think genetic counselors, it would be helpful if they had really had a good handle on local resources for families that are receiving a diagnosis, um, a, a good connection, you know, here's the local Down Syndrome Association, um, here's how to contact them, um, if you want to really know more about what life is like with Down Syndrome, because um, obviously a family that's experiencing it is the best place to really get a good picture of that. Um, that would have been helpful, um, but a, a lot of it was was mainly materials. I felt like we were provided with just a lot of materials, which was on the one hand, overwhelming, but on the other hand, you just kind of wanted to soak up every piece of information that you could get. I mean, we were so craving an understanding and a complete understanding. Um, and, and I remember being left with kind of this gap of what is it like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? What is it like to raise a child with Down syndrome? What does it genuinely look like? Um, and I found it really hard to find that information. Um, you either had, again, this very um, cold medical piece of information, giving all sorts of possibilities and delays and needs and challenges, or you had the life is rainbows and it's unicorns and it's somehow this every moment of your life has become magic because you have this child with Down syndrome and, and neither one of those things are the whole picture. Right. And neither is <laughs> terribly helpful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Neither one is, is exactly what you need. So. Um, so yeah, being able to be directed to resources that give you that um, realistic picture of of life, and um, 
I'm grateful, you know, through the, the Down Syndrome Adoption Network now, I've had the opportunity to talk to a handful of parents that are couples and women that are receiving a diagnosis, a prenatal diagnosis, and are looking for just that. And um, the Down Syndrome Adoption Network uh, refers them to me and they're able to call me and or email or whatever they're comfortable with. And I can answer their questions and I can try and help them understand what it really is like. And I mean, obviously it's different for every family, but um, in a lot of ways, there's some similarities, um, but just kind of bring it down to a nuts and bolts level with, you know, yeah, we do have a few more doctor's appointments. Yep. We have therapy appointments. Um, you know, here's kind of what we do from day to day. They go to school and here's a little bit about what school looks like. Um, those type of things I, I think is super helpful um, to receive something like that. So I think if, if genetic counselors can find the information and, and have access to that to pass on to their patients, that's super helpful. Yeah. And in your case, did you end up finding out more about Down syndrome through the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network primarily or through local Down Syndrome Association? Or how did you feel like that you finally became more informed? Um, We looked in a lot of places. Um, We did contact our local Down Syndrome Association and attended kind of their annual picnic where we met some other families. We met the children um, and got to talk with them. that was a little, that did swing a little more toward the rainbow side, but not completely uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> to meet the kids and, and, and see these families though, truly that are happy and thriving and loving their kids and have other children as well. And everything seemed very, you know, there, it was their normal, it was very normal in their family. So that was helpful. Um, I reached out on social media as well. Um, actually found a couple of accounts that were very helpful where the, the, the moms, it's typically moms that run the accounts on behalf of their children to kind of raise awareness and share information. Um, I found a couple of different accounts that were trying to do just that to share real life, not sugarcoat everything. I mean, granted, you know, if your child's misbehaving, you're less likely to go grab your phone and take pictures than when they're being cutesy and smiling, but same for all parents. <laughs> but, you know, exactly. True of all of us, right. You have to deal with the situation. And, um, but they were willing to share what their daily life was like and what some of the challenges were and, uh, but also what, the joys were and, and get a, a more accurate perspective. And that was helpful. And then of course, there's just some general, the national down syndrome society itself is a very, very, it's a huge, very informative website with a lot, a lot of information about down syndrome. Um, our local DSA gave us some other different books and different resources to review. And, um, so we had a lot to take in. Um, but we did, we, we really made it a point of educating ourselves and, and trying to learn as much as we could. Yeah. And were you and your husband kind of on the same page as you were hearing this information in terms of how you were reacting and what you thought your options were? Yeah, definitely. We, we carried each other through it for sure. We, um, obviously this is not what either one of us had expected and we were concerned. You know, I think our biggest issue were, first of all, it wasn't just one child, it was two, um, which seemed overwhelming. Um, and then the fact that both of us are significantly older parents and just knowing that individuals with Down syndrome have a much longer life expectancy these days um, than they used to, the likelihood of them outliving us is very great. And not knowing how they would be cared for as they got older, not knowing what level of, of help or, or um, support they were going to need as they got older was a big concern for us. And again, being two, um, and, and, and we had just a lot of fears of whether or not we could even take that on. Um, I feel like we were both, again, craving information. We were both 
researching and we would each other in the evenings and, and share what we had found that day or just share the thoughts that had come into our head that day, the things that had just popped into our minds that we hadn't considered or or perspectives that we had thought of because of course it was pretty consuming for quite some time and um and but I feel like um we we were able to be a 100% open with each other, which says a lot about my husband, I think, and the kind of man that he is and that he, that was, it was a safe space for me to be able to, and for him to be that with me as well. And, um, we just shared everything. I, I don't think we've ever been felt as, as, um, I guess intimate, you know, emotionally intimate. And, um, you know, we, we talked more, we cried together, we prayed together, all of those things so much more in that short period of time you know, than we ever had before or since. And so at the end of the day, I think it was actually a good thing for our relationship. Even though it was such a, a hard time as we really wrestled with, um, with the news and the, just the fear of the unknown. Right. Yeah. And was termination or abortion ever an option for you or because of your faith? Was that just like personally something that was off the table from the beginning? Um, because of my faith, I never thought that termination would ever be on the table for me in my life. I, I viewed it quite black and white. Um, and so when the situation came along, I, I, if I would try to consider it, it was really emotional for me, obviously. Um, but at, at one point in our journey, I remember very clearly thinking, okay, we have three options here. We have the option of parenting, we have the option of adoption, and we have the option of termination. And I need to seriously consider all three. And I, I took the time with termination to, um, just kind of go back to the beginning the fundamentals of, of my faith and what my faith says to me about that. Um, and just reevaluate from the beginning, um, through just reading the Bible and praying and just trying to just re travel that road and see if I would come to the same conclusion. Um, and I did it, it uh-huh. probably 24 hours or less, <laughs> but I did come back to that same conclusion of just at the end of the day, it was, do I, or do I not trust God with my circumstances? and the situation that I'm in. And, um, and I do, and I do. And I felt like, um, termination was not, um, in line with me walking in a way that showed that I trusted God. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, you know, you thought of as a really black and white issue. Mm -hmm. I wonder for you, like going through that process, even though you came to the same conclusion for you personally, did that make you view the issue any, any differently? I think, again, for me personally, I still view the issue. Um, I guess that the mechanics, I guess, I don't know what way to put it, um, as fairly still see it fairly black and white, but I see the, the, um, mm-hmm. just the emotions and the individual stories are never black and white. Um, anyone who's walking through a pregnancy that's, um, either unplanned or, um, not going the way that it was expected. That's a, that's a gray time. It's a very, very gray and hard and scary time. And I can see how, um, especially fear can really motivate someone to feel like they only have one option. And I think, like I say, I still feel the same way about what actually happens when a termination occurs, but I have a lot more compassion for women that are finding themselves in a situation where they need to consider it. And then maybe even feel like that is their only option and that they have to go down that road um, rather than feeling judgmental or um, like, you know, I guess that's the best word for it. Rather than feeling like I would judge someone for making that decision, I think I would have a lot more compassion um, for yeah. who finds themselves in that situation. 
Um, it's that it, you kind of led into my next question when you mentioned fear, because mm-hmm. um, from reading your story that you wrote on the NDSAN website, which we'll also include in the show notes, which was really lovely, um, really nicely written. Like you, I think you mentioned that for you, like coming to the decision that you weren't actually going to give the boys up for adoption, but you were going to keep them and raise them, um, that it was, it was kind of dealing with that issue of, of fear. Is that right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the unknown is obviously a huge fear. Um, when we don't know what to expect, we don't know what's coming, obviously. Um, it, it can make you really afraid. And, and I think that's really what, what caused us to be hesitant to parent in the first place was just the fear of the future, the fear of the effect on our family, on our other children, um, whether or not we could manage um, if they had medical needs, therapy needs, you know, all of those things um, just felt terrifying, <laughs> I guess was the, was the main thing. Um, and uh, I think when we, when I, when, when I would pray about the situation, mm-hmm. you know, I would ask God really to just give me direction. What should I do? I would say, I just want, just tell me what we should do. But I think in the back of my mind, I really knew um, that the right choice for us was parenting because um, I, I believe these boys were, were a gift. And I, I felt some guilt at not accepting that gift and, and almost rejecting the gift because maybe it wasn't quite, you know, the right size, the right color, the right style, you know, um, I, I felt bad about that. and. As, as I prayed, I would ask, you know, what direction should I go? You know, Lord, what way would you have me go? And I feel like I knew already what the right decision was, but, but I, I kind of didn't want to listen. At the same time, again, just because of that fear, I was too afraid to, to accept the path that I felt like was the right path. And um, honestly, what really happened was just at one point, I, I just remember reading my Bible and being reminded of the story of, um, of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water toward Jesus. And um, when the wind and the waves kicked up around him and Peter started focusing on those winds and wind and waves, he started to sink and he had to cry out for help. And that just, even though it was a story that, I mean, I've, I've been a Christian most of my life. I mean, that's a, a story that I could you know, recite frontwards and backwards. I'm very familiar with it. It still spoke to me in a way that just a reminder of how much all of these other circumstances and everything around me was just wind and waves. And that if I just keep my eyes on him, that um, that it was going to be okay, that he was going to hold my hand through it all. I mean, there's still maybe wind and waves going on, but he's going to hold my hand and, and lead me through that. So that helped me. I think it was really just uh, putting aside the fear and deciding not to make a choice simply based on fear. Um, and, and really my husband also, um, he, he really put it well at one point too. He said, you know, no matter what choice we make, the only choice that we can know for certain that we will never regret is a choice to parent. Uh, if we choose any of the other options, we, we might not, but we might regret it. And, um, but keeping these boys, our own kids and raising them ourselves and being their parents, we won't regret that. So, uh, and I thought that was really wise and, and, and he's true. He was right. He's absolutely right. Cause four years later, I would say, I don't regret any of the, cho- any, anything about the choice we made. So. Yeah. And you'd actually, you'd actually connected with a specific family through NDSAN mm-hmm. um, that would have been the adoptive family. Was it, was it hard to let them know that um, they weren't going to be available for adoption? Cause these are all families. Oh, absolutely. That are looking, yeah. How, how did that conversation go? Cause I think you'd actually gotten kind of close to them over that time too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, we started communicating. It was actually a local family. Um, and we were trying really hard to keep walls up for their 
benefit, you know, okay, we won't, um, you know, you don't need to tell us your last name or anything. And they were just very open with whatever we wanted. They really let us call the shots. And, but from the very beginning, we had told them that we are not 100% sure that we're going to proceed with this adoption option. Um, and as we got to know the family, we met their, their children, they met our kids, everything. Um, we told them, if we do go down that road, you are the family that we're going to choose. Um, so we kind of built this relationship with them and, and kept in close communication with them. And I was really able to be um, quite transparent with this family, with the, with the wife, especially the mom. Um, she and I became good friends actually. Um, so I was able to be really honest with her about, you know, the process went on and how we were wrestling with our different thoughts and her family also was praying for us. And, um, they were just very, very kind and gracious. Um, and they, they'd been on the registry for a while and I'm trying to remember, but it seems like prior to that, they may have had a situation fall through prior to us. So, um, so yeah, calling them and telling them, we knew it wasn't going to be a shock to them. Uh-huh. And we certainly didn't be the family that was um, at the hospital, the babies are born. And we say, actually, we right. <laughs> not want to be that family. So we knew that we wanted to make our decision well before they were born. And, and, and we didn't want to leave them hanging because really they were off the registry for that whole period of time of, I think it was at least a couple of months um, as they were kind of reserved for us. And we felt that was unfair to them to string them along for too long because they may be missing another opportunity with another child. So um, when we finally made that choice and called them, it was hard. And, um, but I think they were happy for us, which, I mean, that just shows you what gracious people they are in that they, in their own grief, they were happy for us and grateful that we had made the choice that we made and, and grateful that they were able to kind of help facilitate us coming to the decision that we did. Um, and, and we're still friends today. And they went through a couple other situations where, they attempted to adopt and things fell through and it was just an emotional roller coaster for them. But now they have a, a baby um, that they were able to adopt and it's finalized and um, kind of has a happy ending there, which is really nice. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. We love making patient stories and we love that we are able to provide it to you without ads or influence from corporate sponsorships. And we would really like to keep it that way. If you'd like to support our podcast, please donate to patient stories at graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com forward slash podcast forward slash donate. How did your delivery go? And were some of the the fears that you'd had about your son's health um, initially kind of confirmed or allayed? I think I think um, I've read you, you said that both of your sons have hypothyroidism and one did have to have surgery soon after birth. Yes, that's correct. Um, delivery went unexpected. Um, Charlie was born very quickly. He was baby A. Very quickly, he was locked and loaded and ready to go, do contractions, no problem. Um, and then Milo, um, baby B, he was much smaller, and we thought it'd be a piece of cake to get him turned and out somehow. The doctor even said she'd deliver and breach. She just didn't think it'd be a problem, but he refused to turn either direction. He was transverse, and he just hung out there no matter how much they tried to reposition him. Um, he was very stubborn, and he, he still marches to beat with some drum, but... Uh-huh. Um, they, uh, then his heart rate really started to plummet. So they had to do an emergency C-section for him. Um, and you know, they, we were in the OR already with twin births. You always deliver in the OR here in our hospital system. And, um, and they had two NICU teams ready in the room as well. And they had already, were working on, you know, looking at Charlie and he was great. He was crying and doing well. Um, and then Milo was born and I remember not hearing him cry. Um, I mean, I was, I was so doped up with an emergency C-section. They really have to (laughs) 
put a lot of into it quickly and you have a lot more um, drugs in you than you need just to make sure that everything goes smoothly. But um, so I never heard him cry in the room, but I do remember the NICU teams being very calm and I never remember their, their um, appearing to be, you know, no one was yelling and there were no alarms going off and no um, hustling and bustle and everything. It was a very calm time. Um, but they did show me, show Milo to me and they already had um, some tubes and monitors on him. And then they whisked him away to the NICU right away. Um, by looking at ultrasound before he was born, I can back up a little, they did see what appeared to show that he had duodenal atresia, which is um, fairly commonly uh, related to Down syndrome. Um, it's not uncommon for kids with Down syndrome to have that diagnosis. So based on what they saw in the ultrasound, they suspected that. And we had already met with the pediatric surgeon before they were born um, just to find out what they would anticipate doing, what the possibilities could be for how the blockage was actually presented um, and how they would correct it. So we kind of expected that. Um, so they got him in queue and did the x-ray. And then when he was three days old, they went in for the surgery. Um, and then we were called from surgery and they said, actually, he doesn't have duodenal atresia. He just has a malrotation of his small intestine. They're just like kinked. Um, yeah. They were just kind of, which is not associated necessarily with Down syndrome. It was just a fluky thing. So um, that was actually a, a less significant diagnosis and they were able to correct that. And um, he actually recovered right on time. He was in the hospital for three weeks, mm. um, but it was hard because Charlie was like, I mean, he was all cheeks and chub. He was a full pound bigger than Milo. Charlie was six pounds, 15 ounces, and Milo was five pounds, 15 ounces. So they were both good sizes, but um, Charlie was born ready to eat. I mean, they had him in the NICU for an hour and a half, long enough to do an echo, and then they kicked him out because um, he was just healthy as can be. And um, so I went home with him while Milo was still in NICU. So there was a lot of back and forth, which was hard. Um, having a baby at home and a baby in the NICU was mm. sure hard. But, um, since then, um, I think around six months, the boys were diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Um, they weren't symptomatic at all, but the American Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics has a very well-established, uh, protocol for all the different things that you check for with a child with Down syndrome. Um, you do regular blood draws to check for all the things that are more common. Um, so it was detected in a routine blood draw for them that they did have low thyroid. Um, so we began seeing endocrinology regularly and they were put on a, a synthroid, um, you know, a, a thyroid replacement, um, which has ended up, they still are on it, um, but it's a very, very low dose. And um, they, again, they've never been symptomatic and we could probably start the process of weaning them off, but it would just be more blood draws. And I'm not really ready for that right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the routine of, of treating yeah. it currently is so simple. Um, they have medication they take. It's just part of our morning routine. It's a little tablet. We crush it up with a teeny bite of applesauce and then we get them dressed and make the breakfast and then because they have to take it on an empty stomach. And then by the time I'm done making breakfast, it, they're, they're ready, to, excuse me, ready to eat. So, um, it's a very simple, I mean, super minor issue. Um, you know, since then we've had, um, a lot of visits with audiology. Both boys have had a different types of, um, a little bit of compromised hearing. Charlie's resolved on its own. Milo ended up needing to get ear tubes. Um, the challenge there though, was waiting for him to get old enough to where his ear canals were large enough to place the tubes. Um, Down syndrome have very small everything. It, all their passages are small. Their ear canals, tear ducts, nasal passages, throats, everything are all small. Um, so getting in there to place the tubes took a long time. But once that was done, the hearing issues were resolved and we haven't had a problem since then with that. Both boys have had their tonsils and adenoids removed. They had them removed on their third birthday. Just their tonsils were enormous and Typically, I think most children with Down syndrome will have their tonsils and adenoids removed. Um, mm -hmm. Obstructive sleep apnea is fairly common. 
And the first line of treatment for that is typically removal of tonsils and adenoids. So um, since my boys both, you know, Milo's especially visibly were ginormous, um, we just went ahead and had them removed while they were young, while the recovery was a little less um, significant. And we did it both at the same time because we just didn't want to have to go through it twice. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> and that worked well. And, and we knew that um, well in advance that we probably had that in our future. Um, Milo also had to have, you know, he had an undescended testicle that they addressed when he was little. And um, he's had uh, one eye that tends to like to cross. So he had surgery to correct that. So Milo's the one who's had, I think, I think, you know, one, obviously the one big surgery when he was born. And then I think he's had three other surgeries since then, two outpatient and then the one tonsils and adenoids, which was only one night, just kind of out of routine to keep him one night in the hotel or in the hospital. And um, Charlie's just had the one. Um, Milo's the one who's had more of the health issues, but mm-hmm. they both have, um, they both have congenital heart defects. But the only reason we know they do is because we were looking for them. And because knowledge with echocardiograms is so tremendous, they were able to, to spot them. Um, but their cardiologist has said, you know, I could just as easily have the same type of defect and never know it. Um, they, see the, they see the cardiologist every two years now um, just monitoring and um, they don't have any restrictions. They're able to participate in whatever activities they want. They don't need any special, um, you know, considerations with anything. Um, they just, we just know they're there. Uh, that was a misconception I had about kids with Down syndrome. I had read, you know, in, in the scary literature about the medical complications that half of kids with Down syndrome have heart defects. And that said to me that half of kids with Down syndrome had to have open heart surgery at some point in their life. And that's incorrect. Um, they, Charlie and Milo fall into that 50% of children that have defects, but um, I don't know what percentage of children have to have major intervention for it, but it's not the full 50%. So um that's a little, that's encouraging, I think, to know and, and is a little misleading when you read that, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to have two boys, probably one of them is going to need open heart surgery if the statistics are correct, right. you know, um, and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Do you know what kind of heart defects they have? Charlie has what the cardiologist referred to as the textbook murmur, or okay. excuse me, the textbook benign murmur. So his murmur is like, if you want a benign one, that's not an issue. He's the one who's got it. Um, and then Milo has one of his valves, um, part of it is, is a little, um, a little like sticky or rigid or something to where it just doesn't behave a hundred percent normally. Um, but again, it, it's, you know, it's closing when it needs to close and opening when it needs to open and there's no leakage. Um, so it's not an issue, but we just kind of keep an eye on it. Both of them, I believe had holes as well, but they've closed up over time, which I think a lot of them do. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, what was your insurance coverage like through, through all of this and up to present in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, their, their medical care? Um, and then also with, with early intervention, like, um, cause I know, you know, financial burden was a, was a concern mm-hmm. for you and it's just a concern for prospective parents in general, as they're thinking about the potential of raising a child with down syndrome. Right. Yeah, we we knew before the boys were born that um, because of their disability diagnosis that they would qualify for Medicaid coverage through our state. Um, And so I was even in there trying to apply before they were born because I thought, look, I've got the amnio, I've got this diagnosis. What do I need to do to get the ball rolling ahead of time to make sure they're covered? And um, so I was trying to be really proactive and um, through the help of the patient um, financial advocate at the hospital and that and just all the other avenues I I kind of fleshed out. We were able to get the boys. Uh, Medicaid coverage from day one, um, which actually covered all of their medical costs. Cause we had, you know, 
I don't know, $140,000 bill or something from 20 days in the NICU and surgery for Milo. So um, that's pretty daunting, even with good insurance. Um, but that was all covered, um, thankfully. And same with all of their surgeries. Because of their diagnosis, they qualified um, for Medicaid coverage, which, which it covers everything. It covers all of their medical needs, even um, dental, vision, um, any procedures, well-child visits, anything. And then um, also Medicaid covers um, private therapy. So um, we did take advantage of the infant toddler program, which comes to your home um, for children age zero to three. Um, that was very useful when the boys were little because getting out was tricky and um, having them come to the home and, and evaluate some of their therapeutic needs, um, helping them with feeding, which was a, an issue for sure, just because of their low muscle tone. Um, they definitely had some feeding challenges and they were able to help us with that. And, um, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, all of those things. Um, that's all offered to any child who shows need, regardless of diagnosis or not, that's, that's provided free of charge in every state. Um, so they came to our home and did that. And then later when we felt like we wanted to pursue some private therapy, um, Medicaid did cover that as well. So those have all been paid for by, for us, which is wonderful. Um, and then as time has gone on, because we have the Medicaid coverage, we also qualify for, um, an additional waiver in our state that. Um, provides us with a, a budget each year that we're able to use kind of at our discretion for things that are not covered by our traditional Medicaid plan. Um, we've used it for things like respite care has been helpful. Um, they've needed some kind of adaptive high chairs. We were able to get those with the budget, um, some alternative therapies, um, tutoring, that sort of thing that isn't covered because it's not technically OTPT or speech. Um, that's been covered. Um, Let's see, um, if we needed any kind of adaptive equipment at one point, Milo used a little walker to get around while he was learning to walk mm -hmm. and gave him the support he needed. We were actually able to borrow one from another family, but if we hadn't had that option, we could have purchased one um, some of these funds. Um, so there's a lot of options out there. Um, and it was, it was a big concern for us if we'd be able to afford, you know, all the extra things that might come along with having children with disabilities. And um, I've been really pleased to see how much is available to, prov to provide support. Um, it's what we have here is the Katie Beckett waiver, um, which is a way to access traditional Medicaid coverage when your family is over income. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the point of it is to allow your child to have some of these care, this more um, direct care and needs met and still live at home. Because um, it used to be your only option was really an institutional setting to receive the services that a child would need that had a significant disability. Um, and this Katie Beckett waiver brings all that into the home and under the control of the parent so they can provide what their child needs while they're living in their family, which is obviously the best place for any child to live is, is with their family. So we're grateful for that program for sure. Yeah. I think about, I don't know if you know, maybe like about half of states have that Katie Beckett waiver. Yeah. I'm not sure what the number is. Um, and for states that don't have that, some of them have other things that are somewhat comparable, but it definitely vary by state what is available um, and what options different families have. Um, and if it's not available in your state, then it's time for somebody to start advocating and contacting your lawmakers and getting that available because it's a federal program that's available for states to take advantage of. Um, 
And uh, it should be in every state, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, you're in Idaho, which we like, I, I don't think has a reputation of being a state that's like really full of um, extra services. No. Maybe that's not fair to Idaho. Yeah. But <laughs> that's true. It's true. I'm, I'm having gotten to know families in other states. I'm, I'm amazed at the quality of benefits that we have here. And, and you're right. It is typically a more conservative state that you wouldn't think would have a lot of those social services, but um, actually we do. And, and I'm so grateful that we just happen to be here and um, we don't have waiting lists. We don't have caps. We don't have any of that. We just have to access the services that we need for our children. I mean, there's red tape and sometimes it takes weeks to get, you know, the paperwork pushed through, but, um, but it does get through and, and we receive those services. Yeah, that's great. Um, so your, your sons are still very young. Um, what do you see in their future just over the next two to five years? Or do you have, to what extent do you still have some of those same concerns about them outliving you and who will take care of them or how have those, how have those current concerns kind of changed over time? I think it's, it's helped a lot to get to know other families that have older children and adult children with Down syndrome. Um, I've gotten very involved in local advocacy for individuals with disabilities, um, all different disabilities. So um, getting to know some adults that are self-advocates and, and uh, again, seeing what kind of services they're able to access um, to provide what they need and allow them to um, live how they want to live, where they want to live, um, um, find employment and be involved in their community and participate in things that are fulfilling to them. Um, the options are out there and, and they exist and, um, it, it makes the future a lot less scary. And honestly, um, I don't know if you've, if you're familiar with the show born this way that used to run on A&E, but, um, it's a show all about a group of young adults with down syndrome and their different circumstances. Um, some are living at home, some are working on moving into an apartment, some are getting jobs, you know, some are pursuing their own business. Um, just all different stages. Um, and to me, it was so encouraging and so just brought out this bright light for our future, I guess. Our, our future suddenly looked so much more hopeful after seeing more of that. Um, that's helped a lot, just getting to see what some adults do and, and, and also just rethinking this whole idea of independence. I mean, it's important that, um, that my boys learn the level of independence, whatever level they can, but at the same time, is it, is it, is that the end goal of our life to be completely independent of everyone? Is it really such a bad thing to rely a little bit on others or things that you need? I mean, we all do, um, we on our friends, our family, our support systems. Um, so if my boys grow up and, and need support, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and just, I think just changing my perspective on that as well, um, has helped a lot. And, um, you know, right now we're just looking at, I mean, they're in preschool right now. And in another year and a half, they'll be starting kindergarten and that's when it gets real and um, just working toward um, my goal for them there is, is to make sure that they're in a school where they're in an inclusive environment. The most important goal to me is that they're learning alongside their peers and they're included in everything that's going on in school because that's how I want their life to be. Um, all their life, they should grow up you know, going to church where everyone else goes to church, going to community events, just like everybody else, going shopping, where everybody shops, going to out to eat where everybody else out goes out to eat, um, participating in, you know, going to the movies, going out, do it where, where everyone does. Um, so I feel like in school, if they begin learning in the same place that everyone does, rather than being relegated to a separate classroom or a separate location, we're, we're setting that standard early on that they, they belong and that they have a place in community. Um, 
So I think that's got my short-term goal, I guess, is to, to make sure that they have a, a place like that where their, um, their academic needs are being met with the accommodations that they need, but yet they're included with their, their age-appropriate peers. So that's the kind of precedent set for their later life. Yeah. And from what you know of your, like the schools in your area um, and the the, dif- the involvement you have with different um, Down syndrome support groups, do you think that that's, that's probably not going to be an issue, like achieving those those goals of having them being be integrated? I think it's a realistic goal. Um, I think like anywhere, um, the attitudes of the schools vary based on really the administration of each individual school. Um, and there's plenty of schools out there in, in different areas that are really making great strides and have a goal of that inclusive environment. Um, and then there's schools where they're still a little behind. And um, where I live, I think I have a lot of really good options. And I'm really excited to see how it goes there. They're going to developmental preschool right now. So they're in the, the public school system and um, they have a fantastic special education team that really approaches their plan from a strengths based perspective. They look at first the boys' strengths and, and where they're at, look at them as a whole rather than, okay, well, we have these, these bars and they're not meeting this bar or this bar or this bar. So here's where we need to work to bring them up. It's, you know, they, instead they look at them as a whole and where are their strengths? What drives them? What motivates them? Um, where are they succeeding and how can we continue to encourage that? And then um, use that to bring them up in the areas where there's deficits. Cause I, I mean, it's not, Nobody's going to surprise me by telling me that my boys have some developmental deficits compared to other, you know, (laughs) obviously, Um, but to see them as a whole and know that their deficits aren't, this is the whole story. There's a lot more to them than that. And and, uh, our local school here really has that, that attitude. And I'm very grateful for that. And um, if I feel like it didn't, I would, I would move them to a different school. Um, Honestly, uh, some people stay in and try and fix from the inside out. and, And I applaud folks that do that. And, um, I don't think I have the bandwidth for that, to be honest, since I've got two of them. It's like, oh boy, I just need to go somewhere where this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I know we stand on the shoulders of a lot of, um, a lot of parents that have paved the way and helped create better environments in a lot of our schools. And I'm very grateful for that. And, um, and I do advocate in a lot of ways to keep pushing that forward for sure. So are you, it was, it was interesting. So I talked to Stephanie Thompson recently, who also has a son with Down syndrome. I think her mm-hmm her episode will probably come out like not too long before this episode. Um, And it was interesting talking to her that she was glad that she didn't learn about the diagnosis while she was pregnant. She thought that that would have been really difficult. Um, So I'm wondering, are you glad that you received that prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome? And how do you think your experience might've been different if you'd only learned about that diagnosis postnatally? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, I am glad that, yeah, we knew ahead of time, even though that time period was so challenging um, and processing the news and, and making decisions on what to do was hard. Um, by getting all that out of the way during my pregnancy, um, when the boys were born, it was pure celebration. Yeah, finding out while I was so pregnant, obviously, um, you know, it did steal some of the joy from my pregnancy. You know, we missed a lot of that, you know, happy anticipation just because of the worry and the fear. But, but then once they were born, we dealt with so much of that, that we were just able to welcome them with joy. There were no scary surprises and we were able to just, you know, and we knew what the medical challenge was. So we were able to address that and there weren't any surprises there. Um, so I guess that's the upside. Um, 
but I, I feel like most, most women that I know that whatever diagnosis they had, they felt like that was probably the best way to do it. <laughs> I guess you're going to feel that way because you can't change it. So you might as well spin your experience to where it's the best possible outcome. Um, it seems like an like a appropriately adaptive way to view it, <laughs> to see the, the good, yeah. the good and however it happened for you. Yeah. And I know, um, you know if you find out after the baby's born, obviously seeing that your child and having your child in your arms can make dealing with the news a little easier, I would think, just because you're there. And obviously the moment you lay eyes on your child, you, you love that child so much and, and you can, you can kind of, all right, let's just hold hands and let's proceed. You know, let's tackle whatever life throws at us together. And I'm here for you and I'm in your corner and, and uh, I love you and I'm going to advocate for you and care for you and give you whatever it is that you need. So um, I think there's positives to, to both ways. I mean, we felt like we needed to know and so that we could be prepared and um, not everyone has that, that attitude. And I think it's a very, very personal decision to um, either choose to be tested or not. What do you wish that people understood about Down syndrome? Well, first of all, um, just that Down syndrome isn't something that should provoke pity in anyone. Um, it may not be, you know, something that a parent obviously chooses, you know, they're not typically looking um, to have a child with Down syndrome, but um, really the quality of life is is quite high. There's uh, a lot of statistics about um, just the satisfaction with life for parents and siblings of people with Down syndrome. Um, and it's actually in the upper 90s um, percentage-wise. And uh, individuals with Down syndrome have been uh, surveyed as well and found that their level of, of happiness with their life is up there above 99%. So most people are really happy with their lives and families are happy to have people with Down syndrome in their life. So I don't, I don't feel like anyone needs to feel sorry for anyone um, because they have that in their life or because they have that diagnosis themselves. So, um, you know, these days I, I often uh, meet uh, women locally that have recently received a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome and um, it's really hard for me to kind of rein in my enthusiasm for them. <laughs> I find myself just super excited for them. And, and they're in this process of trying to deal with their feelings and their uh, just that struggle of coming to terms with um, that diagnosis and um, being on the other side of it. I know what a joy that it can be. So um, it's kind of a funny situation now that, you know, I have to have to remind myself to just be sensitive to where they are and, and processing those feelings. But, um, and, and I think everyone goes through that with very few exceptions. Um, everyone, you know, I'd love to go back to pregnant me and, and say, you know, you're going to be okay. Look at where your life is going to be. And, um, but I don't, I, I just couldn't accept that initially. I, I couldn't take that in. And it just, it just took time. It took time to process all those feelings and experience them. Um, but, I, I know a lot of, a lot of moms of kids with Down syndrome of all different ages, adult children, everything. And we all have different details to our diagnosis stories. Um, but the end is all the same at the end. Everyone is so happy with their life. Just can't even hardly remember what it was they were so afraid of at the beginning, um, and are just so grateful for their child and couldn't imagine life without them. Yeah. Yeah. 
And for someone who is listening to this podcast then who's in that situation where they're not in the club, but they've been told Mm -hmm. that they have a higher risk for Down syndrome or chance for Down syndrome, or maybe they've just even gotten a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, what would you want them to know? Oh, gosh, same thing. Just that 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 future is is genuinely bright. Um, you'll you'll be amazed at. Uh, I, I'm amazed at how many people love my children. I mean, everybody loves kids and and whatnot, but um, when you have a child with Down syndrome, the the people that enter your life that love your child, um, it's it's incredible. It's it's overwhelming and um, almost humbling in a way. Just the people that are so happy to be a part of your child's life and, and how much they bring out in other people to just want to be a part of their life. Um, you know, yeah, there's extra things. There's, there's extra therapies, there's extra doctors, extra, um, you know, specialists and um, extra educators involved once you're in the school system to help with education. Um, but all of those people are so happy to be a part of your life and, and to be a part of your child's life. Um, and, and, really by, by having your child in, in our community, they're, they're changing other people's lives, not because people with Down syndrome are somehow angelic beings or closer to God or some sort of magical, you know, unearthly thing, which, which I think some people try and paint that picture or have that misconception. And that's not true. Kids with Down syndrome are kids first, and uh, they have all the ups and downs and the, the moods and the the different personality traits and all of those things, just like any child does. But, um, but what they do do is um, allow other people around them to kind of step out of their, what's familiar to them and um, take that time to accept someone who's a little different, to be a little bit more patient, to understand that, that uh, not everyone goes from point A to point B in the same way or in the same speed, um, and that that's okay. And uh, I think it brings out compassion and um, just goodness in in people by being exposed to people that are different. Um, and so any, any child is going to be a part of that. Um, any child with Down syndrome is gonna bring that to everyone, um, just to everyone around them. And, and really, the community, seriously, the community, I, I didn't want to be part of the club, but now I feel like I am so grateful to be part of this community. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Down syndrome family community is just tremendous. It's unbelievable. In fact, just last night, we ha- I have a group of moms we get together with every month and, and we don't talk, we don't sit around and just talk about Down syndrome all night either. I mean, we've all become friends and we just share life and our experiences and they are some of the best friends I've ever had. Um, and, and I'm grateful for that. So, you know, I didn't want to be part of the club, um, but now um, I, I'm just, I feel like, gosh, thanks, Charlie and Milo. Thanks for being born so that I can have these relationships in my life that I never would have had otherwise. That's really lovely. Thank you so much for talking with me. And we will include the social media links for Facebook and Instagram for Milo and Charlie in the show notes. Super, um, thank they you. have an absurd number of followers. They're very cute. Um, very popular. <laughs> I was just at therapy with the boys today and there was a gal in the waiting room with her daughter and she shows me her phone and said, is this you guys? 
<laughs> and show me your Instagram. And I said, yep, that's us. <laughs> if you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to greatgenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.